0: with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 263 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie. Mary Jo, welcome back to connecting with Walt.
1: Well, hi Michael. Thank you for having me back. I I always love listening to you and par- and participating. So
0: Thank you. Well, I we we love having you on. In this episode, we are taking a look at a little known aspect of Disney history. We are all familiar with Walt's love of trains, but you may not know that Walt also had a love of planes and flight in general. So joining us to talk about Walt and his planes are Mark Malone, who is the son of Charles A. Malone Jr., who was Walt's personal pilot and started the Walt Disney Aviation Department in 1962. From 1979 until its final flight for Walt Disney Productions, Mark served as a pilot flying with his dad until Charles retired in 1982, and Mark continued as captain on the Gulf Stream. Later on, Mark was asked by then-Disney CEO Michael Eisner to become chief pilot in Orlando when the Gulf Stream's base was relocated from Burbank, but he chose to remain near his family in Southern California. Also joining us is Dexter Francis, who is a former Imagineer who created the Waltz Airplanes Facebook group and has researched the history of Waltz Plane. He is also the author of "Building Disney's Dream: The Little Company That Could," which is the story of Disney's relationship with the Arrow with Arrow Development, which built many Disney theme park attractions. Mark and Dexter, welcome to Connecting with Walt.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
3: Great.
0: Nice to be here.
3: It's
2: Mark.
0: Yeah, we're delighted to have you.
2: So, Mark,
0: would you tell us the story of your father, Charles Malone, and how he became associated with Walt Disney Productions?
3: Well, uh, my dad was uh, served in World War II in the Army Air Corps. When he got out, he was working for Lockheed uh, as a uh, welder, and he became general manager of Skyroamers Air Travel based at Burbank Airport. Uh, Skyroamers was a co-op, the largest in the country, Individuals would come in, and for a certain amount of money, they could buy into a basic single-engine airplane, an advanced single-engine airplane, or a light twin airplane. And from that, uh, my dad was also the chief pilot, and so he trained uh, many of the owners uh, to fly the airplanes that they then owned a share of. Uh, One of the uh, owners was Willie Reitherman, who was also a renowned pilot in World War II. And when he wanted to fly in a civilian, he needed to be checked out just like anybody else. So he started uh, flying with Skyroamers, uh, found it to be a good experience. And with his uh, conversations with Walt, uh, showing frustration for the freeway system and trying to get to Anaheim and trying to get to uh, Palm Springs on the weekend, he said, well, you know, maybe you should just uh, charter an airplane and uh, fly instead of drive. Well, he said, well, how would I do that? And he says, well, I'll put you in touch with uh, Chuck Malone. He runs the Sky Roamers operation, and he's also their chief pilot. So he'll personally fly you uh, wherever you need to go. And from that, you can decide whether small airplane flying is something that would work for you. So they set up a flight. It's in a small airplane, basically six seats, going to like Palm Springs for the weekend. And all of a sudden, he could look down and see the freeway stopped with traffic and Back, of course, in the early 60s, it really wasn't much of a freeway anyway. It was more like Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, So he could get down there in less than an hour instead of three or four hours on the highway. And uh, he could be productive. He wasn't at the wheel driving. He was in the back uh, with a table looking at scripts or whatever. So that didn't last very long. And he said, Well, I got to have one of these. So he said, What should I get? And said, Well, what's your mission? And he said, well, it's basically to take my family to Palm Springs and to get down to, to Disneyland and then to do a little scouting around. So they settled on a uh, Beach Queen Air, which uh, was made in Wichita, Kansas. It was a twin-engine piston airplane, uh, pretty good for its time. Uh, had about 10 seats in it all together. So with the pilot, they could take about nine. So it worked real good for Walt to take his family to Palm Springs on the weekend to get down to Disneyland for a pop in and then get back to work. Um, So then he said, well, I like this airplane, so I need a pilot. You want to come work for me? So they worked out an arrangement where he became his personal pilot. And basically that's all he did was just fly Walt. Well, to buy this airplane, it wasn't uh, a lot of money to the studio, but it was a lot of money uh, relative to where they could spend money. And Roy Disney just was not a fan of of small little airplanes at all. So to sell him on the company aspect of it, he said, well, let's start using it for company business. So they would take the lunch break and take some of their executives and key people out, put six of them or so in the airplane with box lunches. They'd take off. They'd fly to Santa Barbara. They'd fly to Catalina. They'd fly over Disneyland. They'd come back. They'd do all that in an hour. Then all of a sudden people could see, hey, We can really get somewhere, even in a small airplane. And so that sold Roy and the company on the fact that a small airplane could be useful to save time. And that becomes the most precious uh, commodity of any talented person is time. There's only so many hours in the working day. And the more you spend focused on what's going to be good for your business, the better everybody is. So that's really how the aviation department started was just exposing Walt to personal aviation, and he became fascinated by it.
0: That's that's interesting. Okay, you said Roy didn't like small planes. So did he ever ride in one of the company planes?
3: Oh, yes. He eventually rode in all of them okay. because he saw the personal benefit of it, along with all the other executives that ran the company that followed him. Uh, and, and Roy used it a little bit personally, along with Walt. But they were always mainly – uh, business operations to, uh, to get to either uh, see Disneyland or go to see key people or key investors that would be participating in uh, sponsoring rides in Disneyland. Uh, because remember, Disney at that time was a small company, and they couldn't afford to both buy land, build all the rides, and hire all the people. They needed sponsors, so when you go by the original Disneyland, you would see something presented by. Presented by means they've contributed capital to help build that. And that, of course, is how Walt Disney World also started, was with key sponsors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I know Roy had a lot to do with that as well. So, Dexter, how did you become interested in the history of Walt's Plane?
2: Well, I've, I've been interested in aviation. Let me start there. Uh, actually, since I was old enough to dribble, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, my, uh, my mom had a photograph of me, uh, looking at a, uh, an aircraft that was a m- mid fifties, uh, fighter airplane and the photographer put a little pencil behind one ear and I'm looking at it. Like, I really know what this thing is, mm. but, um, my, my initial exposure to the mouse, uh, actually happened as a result of some work that I was doing several years ago. Uh, you mentioned that I, I am a, a former Imagineer. I, I worked on the Enchanted Tale of Beauty and the Beast in Tokyo on the ride system for that. And, um, while we were doing some of the feasibility studies on the, on the ride system, I had an opportunity to go down to, to Florida to visit a vendor there outside of Orlando. And after those meetings were over and I had some spare time on my hands, I was out driving around in the property and uh, happened to go up one of the roads that went out by the water treatment plant. And much to my great surprise, there's an airplane sitting there. And uh, so that was my, my, my first knowledge of it. But once i once that became i became aware of that it started to just kind of grow in the back of my mind and i was getting more and more curious about it and uh, i started to do some research online learn a little bit more about grumman and uh, and what they were doing and what a unique aircraft the g1 was and it kind of took on a life of its own in much the same way that the the book that i wrote about aero development kind of took on a life of its own. I'm I'm from Palo Alto, and they were just down the road in Mountain View. So it's been several years now that uh, I've been been working on it. And at one point I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to fly this thing? (laughs) (laughs) And fortunately, there's a way to create aircraft for a piece of flight simulation software called X-Plane. So I went online to one of the user groups there and discovered that someone had actually done a Gulfstream one and uh, started to become familiar with that. And then decided that, you know, I wanted to turn it into a recreation of the way the aircraft looked when Walt was flying it uh, all the way into the interior. And uh, started working on that, uh, gosh, about four years ago now. And um uh, still still work on it sometimes day to day. Mark, uh, when Mark was, uh, was there at the Walt Disney family museum and his son were there, uh, had an opportunity to, to show it to both of them and, uh, give them a little bit of stick time in it. Uh, so this is just one of those, those things that kind of gets under your skin. I think maybe in the same way that, you know, when Walt was, was a little boy, uh, living in Kansas city, um, 1911 he and Roy uh, ran a couple of miles to see Calberth Perry Rogers flying in the Vin Fizz and uh, then 10 years after that he's doing a, a, a animated cartoon with Mickey Mouse called mm-hmm. Plane Crazy and I think uh, it uh, aviation kind of stuck to me and, and grew and, and my love of Disney and aviation intersected in 234 Mickey Mouse so that's that's how I got here.
0: That's wonderful. I think it's great, too, that you basically preserved the interior of the Gulf Stream, you know, virtually, so that we can all pretend we're Mark.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Walt, for that matter. Yeah,
0: oh, that's true. That's true. So um, so how much input did Walt have into the aviation department and the selection and design of the various aircraft?
3: Well, um, airplanes are are like your personal office space. They're like your home. Um, so it would be very uncommon for uh, an executive that is in charge of a company to just acquire an airplane and just start flying in it. Uh, these airplanes are all custom made. They're they're made in a lot of sometimes less than a hundred or maybe. A couple hundred, maybe five hundred total per model. So, the uh, the Gulfstream that we're talking about, for example, that became the larger corporate airplane. Uh, that there were only two hundred made in the world. Only two hundred. So each one of those was handmade. When it when the factory finished it, uh, it was a what's called the green airplane, meaning it had primer green paint on it. It had no interior, it had no seats, it only had enough radios to basically fly it in good weather to somewhere that could paint it, could put an interior in it, and put radios in it. And what you chose would be out of a catalog of many suppliers, and you would pick and choose the, the seat frames, the, 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 the size of the chair, whether it reclined or um, tracked outbound, uh, what kind of material the uh, the padding was made out of and, and the top covering. Uh, every detail had to be chosen. So the airplane that uh, Walt Disney Productions ended up with is one of a kind. There's no two airplanes in the world of any type that are anything like that. So it's specific. So the colors of Walt Disney Productions were white, tangerine, orange, and black. So the airplane was white, tangerine, orange, and black. The interior of the airplane was a combination of orange and browns with some beige. And there was a lucite divider between the front cabin and the back. The back cabin in a propeller-driven airplane is the quiet area. It's away from the engines. So that's what's Walt's compartment. So that divider even though it was basically kind of clear, Walt put leaves in it and the leaves came from his home. So he brought from his home something to make his flying office homey. That's how personal the airplane was to colors, to fabrics, to seat configuration, all the way down to even leaves from home.
0: That's wonderful. So, um, I and I I love that personal touch that he had the leaves in there
3: so so the thing the thing that's interesting about these airplanes are is that before this the only airplanes out there were basically military airplanes like a uh DC3 which would be called a C47 a tail dragger non pressurized a B25 bomber where maybe you'd convert the bomb bay to seat two people so There were no personal airplanes out there. A Lockheed Constellation would be the airline of the day, basically. The 707 was just being developed. So this airplane was the first of its kind, the first private airplane that was ever designed that wasn't applied from a military use before it. So it had a jet engine turning a propeller, the Gulfstream. It was pressurized, so no longer were you suffering the effects of altitude trying to escape turbulence or fly over the mountains. It was also air conditioned and heated. So you maintained whatever temperature you wanted. It had a radar on it. So that was very new to airplanes radar. Now you could see rain and that equaled uh, wet weather and a rough ride. And you avoided that. So this, this Gulf stream uh, was the first of its kind, which led to the jet age that followed it uh, to where we are now. But it was the first. Hmm.
0: Yeah, now most of us are familiar with the plane. It was on display for several years on the backlot tour and restored for the D23 Expo. But there were several planes in the Walt Disney Aviation Department. Like You mentioned the Beechcraft Queen Air. Could you tell us um, about each of the aircraft, maybe their history? What was their significance in in what they were used for?
3: There was a total of four airplanes during uh, Walt's lifetime. And uh, the Queen Air, which we started, uh, talked about at the beginning, it was a beach craft. That was the manufacturer made in Wichita, Kansas. They were reciprocating engines, not pressurized, not air conditioned. And uh, it did about 220 miles an hour or so. That airplane served Walt personally in the local area, although it was also deployed throughout the country because he would rather travel on that than on the airlines. Then he replaced that airplane with the same airplane with jet engines turning a propeller, and that went from being a Queen Air to a Beechcraft King Air. Now, that airplane went about 250 miles an hour. It was pressurized, air-conditioned, had radar, same number of seats, but it was much more reliable, jet engines turning a propeller. The Gulfstream was a completely separate Airplane that was bought for company use and it was bought to go for the New York World's Fair in, in particular. The reason they bought it as opposed to a Learjet was is because Learjet made, needed to make two stops to go to New York. The Gulf screen could go nonstop. The Gulf screen could carry 12 passengers, two pilots, a, a, a flight attendant, and have uh, two or three meals on board, hot meals. So it was, it was VIP. A Learjet was basically a limo. You could carry four or five people in it, and uh, you went in burst short distance. So if you were Frank Sinatra and you wanted to go to Palm Springs, it was great. But if you wanted to go to New York, it wasn't ideal. So that's why the Gulfstream was bought, to go to New York for uh, the New York World's Fair 1964-65. And the reason that they chose the New York World's Fair was to showcase Small World, Mr. Lincoln. Uh, the Skyway and Carousel of Progress. Why? And that answer is really simple. They wanted to put little Walt Disney Productions, a little animation studio making a couple of movies with a little basic theme park in Disneyland that some of the people that were starting to see it, but mostly local, they wanted to have now a world recognition of Walt Disney Productions. Why? Because Walt had a dream. And the dream was bigger than Disneyland. He had a project in his mind, but he couldn't do the project without people wanting to come there. Because where he was wanting them to come was going to be a remote area because that's the only place he could afford to buy enough land. He also needed businesses to support each of these rides that cost lots of money. He needed people to to line up to do that. So he took four rides where everybody in the world was going to go for the New York World's Fair, and they saw what Walt Disney could do. And from that point on, he now had sponsors to do the project, and then the airplane became the uh, ride to go look for places to find a location to do the project. So the project always had to be in warm, a warm area that could be 24 uh, you know, hours a day if needed and certainly seven days a week. And 12 months a year. So it couldn't be somewhere that got cold. He couldn't build it indoors. And, uh, so that became, uh, looking in Florida. Why Florida? Because a lot of Florida's swampland, it's not buildable. You can't even drive a boat in part of it. It's just wet. And so he looks around and he goes, Hey, this wetland is cheap. Let's buy a lot of it. Let's buy 27,000 acres of wetland. And let's make nice lakes and let's make dry land. So it's the largest land moving project at the time, the most equipment ever deployed in Florida to make lakes and land. And they did that for multiple years before they could actually build. And so the airplane was used from the air to find places that turned out to be the project. It was also used to fly to San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, to see El Moro, the fort down there, that became the motif for Pirates of the Caribbean. The ride back from, uh, from uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, had an overnight stop in, uh, uh, in New Orleans. And that happened to be uh, November 23rd, 1963. So when they landed, nobody was in a very good mood because the news had just come out that President Kennedy had just been assassinated. So that was a very quiet ride home the next day. But uh, the project had been identified. The land had been acquired. And uh, so that was the Gulfstream one, the turboprop. Walt was so excited about aviation that every year, 62, he bought the queen air, 63, he bought the Gulfstream, 64, he bought the king air, 65, he placed an order for the jet version of the Gulfstream, which was called the Gulfstream Two. And that was the same cabin, basically, but went 550 miles an hour instead of uh, 350. And uh, so he ordered shield number 17. And uh, it had never even flown, and he ordered one. So uh, he was a very much an aviation enthusiast. He could see that it saved time and could get his people places they needed to be. So the, the the Gulfstream was bought to fly the Imagineers, to fly the Dexters of the world of that time. And what they did is they got on this conference room that was flying, and they they had their drinks, they had their conversation, they had their meals, and then they just plotted and plotted and plotted over and over, hours and hours. and And that was the most productive time Walt ever had was when he was on the airplane with the Imagineers just brainstorming.
0: That's fantastic. Did your father talk about any of during the era he flew about, you know, the conversations with Walt or any experiences that really stood out for him?
3: Right. So the uh, the uh, airplane was flown uh, in that green configuration from the factory uh, in 1963 in December to Burbank, California, which is the home of Walt Disney productions. That was going to be the base of the airplane, but it also was one of uh, three facilities that could outfit the airplane and paint it and put the avionics in. So Disney was very lucky that they could complete the airplane right at their home airport. So I wrote on the airplane, it's very first flight in 1964. And that was a training flight for the pilots. I also was on the very last flight for Walt Disney Productions before it went to Florida. So in between, I rode it on, on it as a passenger, uh, as a young child, uh, nine years old. And then in my 20s, I became a pilot on it uh, up until it moved. So I rode with uh, Walt personally on the uh, on the King Air and on the Queen Air on some of his personal flights. One of them in particular was to San Diego. He was very interested in what everybody else was doing. So he said, to my dad, let's go to San Diego. I want to see SeaWorld. He said, bring your wife and Mark. So we went down there, spent the day. He walked around, you know, incognito. He didn't certainly didn't want any recognition. He just wanted to see it as a, as a, uh, you know, customer of SeaWorld. So that was one of the uh, things I remember. He was also given a uh, uh, Polaroid land camera, one of the first ones by Mr. Land. And they came out to the airport and he said, DeMar, hop up in the airplane. I want to take a picture, try this new camera out. Well, in the beach queen air, there, there's a nice padded seat facing out by the door. But that seat, if you lifted it up, was also the toilet. And I was only nine years old. And I didn't really want to have my picture taken on the toilet. So I, I kind of hemmed and hot about that a little bit. He goes, OK, well, I'll tell you what. I'll get up there and you take my picture. So we reversed it and I took his picture up there. So those are a couple of the stories that I have. Now, my dad... Obviously, he was an adult at that point. He was in his early 40s. And so Walt was very interested in everything, but especially aviation, because he could get a three-dimensional look at the world that you can't get just on the ground. So he loved to look out the window. The Queen Air only had one pilot. So Walt spent a tremendous amount of time up front in a co-pilot seat with my dad, I have pictures of him flying the airplane. I have pictures of him on oxygen, you know, smiling away, having a great time. So, he was very interested. He liked to take the controls. My dad was a uh, a flight instructor, he was also an FAA designated examiner, and Walt asked for the manuals on the airplane and to to learn to be a pilot. And I've got a handwritten note from Walt to a secretary that says, uh, "Please return this to Chuck Malone." Uh, i've I've finished reading uh thanks uh Walt so he was so interested in aviation that he actually wanted to learn the nuts and bolts about it uh He never became a pilot he never officially took a lesson uh all the other airplanes they had two pilots, so Walt only had an occasional time up front, but I have a great picture of him sitting in the captain's seat of the Gulf Stream, smiling away uh when one of the other pilots got up for uh you know bathroom break or whatever so um He, he, he was very interested in, in talking. So let me, let me just play this for you. The studio is a mix of a lot of buildings. It's multiple acres. There's one building in particular that Walt had his office in. There's one floor, the third floor where he had his office and his office suite of multiple offices, two secretaries, outer office, inner office, you know, bathroom, kitchen, break room. When you come out of that office, the very first office on the right, the very first one was the flight office. Bob Gurr, the Imagineer, and my dad shared an office there at the beginning of the flight department before it grew bigger and needed its own office at the airport. So that's how close the relationship was between Walton and my dad at the very beginning. He was his personal pilot. He set up the flight department it grew into running an airline. The Gulfstream was an airline. So they hired other pilots to fly the airline. My dad remained flying Walt in the personal airplane during his life. Uh, so for the most part, uh, my dad flew every flight in the King Air and the Queen Air as pilot. And then in the Gulfstream, he flew most of the flights with Walt.
0: That's wonderful. And didn't Walt have a model of one of the planes in his office?
3: Yeah. So if you take a tour right now, today... Of uh, his office at the studio in Burbank, it's still the suite of offices: the outer office, the secretary's desk, the inner office, which was uh, which was the uh, greeting office with all of the statues and two airplane models uh, there that are very visible. One's the King Air, and one is the Gulfstream. And if you look in the back, there's actually a third model. It's the Gulfstream Two in white. He hadn't chosen colors or a paint scheme yet, but he, he already got the model with the, when he ordered it. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, that's how emotionally tied he was to uh, the value of aviation that he not only had, you know, it in his mind, he physically had it in his office, his ceremonial office. In many businesses, the airplane is a very expensive uh, tool to buy and use. And in some operations it's only used for the top executive or the stop very top group. but in the in the Walt Disney production era it was it was a, uh, a bus to take people in, in big groups in the Gulf Stream or it was in like you know Uber uh, in the King Air or the clean Air before that to go in small groups, places more locally. So Walt encouraged people in the company to use the airplanes, And he actually very rarely used the Gulfstream himself because it was mainly used uh, to do two round trips uh, a week uh, to support uh, New York World's Fair.
0: Now, I've heard stories that when Walt was in the cockpit um, or the flight deck, whatever the real term is, um, Lillian would be a little nervous as she was on the plane. And, and, And there's a story how Walt sort of pulled a prank on her.
3: But- yeah, so 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 you know he'd come up there and and he would say to my dad he'd say okay well I want to make a PA announcement how do I do that so public address announcement he wants to talk over the speakers in the cabin so you know you there's an audio panel you select uh, the mic you select the PA and you pick up the mic and then you squeeze the button so he squeezed the button he says. Oh, this is your captain speaking. And he went on to whatever he was going to say. And Lillian stormed up front. Uh, (laughs) This is not first person, but second person. I heard this storm front. And she, she said, you are not the captain. Get out of that seat. (laughs) (laughs) So she was a bit of a nervous flyer and and pretty much knew that Walt didn't know what he was doing up there. Felt more comfortable when there were two pilots up there and Walt wasn't uh, playing around, but, uh, you know, he is very serious about everything he did in life. So I'm sure that if he was a pilot, uh, he would have operated exactly the way he did his steam trains, which was professional as if that was what his uh, life, you know, income depended on. In other words, uh, he, he 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 just wasn't. I mean, you just don't see him playing around with stuff. You see him as a heavy equipment operator operating things exactly the way it's supposed to be. Mm hmm. That's and that's true. why everything turned out to be pretty darn safe because that was really important. Uh, do you have any other really strong memories that you know when you think back to your
0: time what um what stands out for you?
3: Well, uh in 1971 I got to go on the plane down to Florida with my dad. This is during the construction period. So I saw I saw the lakes empty being dredged. I saw the land uh, being built up. I saw the structure like of the castle being built. I saw the, uh, uh, you know, the um, underground. Uh, it was built. You could walk through the underground, but there wasn't anything on top of it yet in in what turned out to be Magic Kingdom. Uh, so then I got to go back multiple other times uh, during the opening and afterwards to see it all come together. So uh, it's always nice to see. Uh, it's like the airplane. I saw the airplane green before there was anything. And then it turned beautiful. I saw the park in Florida green, and then it turned beautiful. So that was special. The other thing that I really liked was during my time, when I was a pilot, I did uh, three tours. So these tours, uh, they were generally to promote the re-release of an animated classic, such as lady in the tramp, snow white, Mary Poppins, whatever. So uh we would take a group from disneyland with either wally bogue or fulton burley they were the MC, and we take two production people and then we take kids kids that are 18 or 19 years old most of them had never left town before we take them out uh for a month at a time how
0: did the grumman gulfstream one get the name the mouse because you would mentioned it i remember you'd called it the mouse a moment ago
3: so, uh, aircraft are kind of like cars. They come out with a, uh, registration number and anything registered in the U.S. starts with an N, uh, and then it has something beyond that. So the Queen Air was the first airplane that they put a personalized plate on. They chose 234MM. So the MM in aviation talk would be Mike Mike, but the pilots decided you know, in their banter with the controllers, they just call themselves Queen Air 234 Mickey Mouse. So the controllers actually like that. So about 9 out of 10 of them would reply, Roger, Queen Air 234 Mickey Mouse. Hmm. A few were a little stuffy, and they go, Roger 234 Mike, Mike. So uh, during Walt's life, his personal airplane always had the 234mm uh, tail number. So when they got the Queen Air, they just moved that tail number over to his personal airplane. The Gulfstream, when it it was bought, remember, we just talked about it, it was bought to promote the project. The project was undercover. So the last thing they wanted was to be flying around looking for cheap land with the Disney name all over the place. Uh, It would have raised suspicion and, and prices would have gone up. So the tail number that the manufacturer signed was 732G, that's golf, 732 golf. So during the whole life of the Gulfstream, when Watt was alive, the call sign was uh, Gulfstream 732 golf. So that allowed them to fly around, and there was no mouse on the tail. There, there was nothing that identified the airplane as belonging to any company, much less Disney. I was them- going
1: to ask you about that because earlier you in the other planes you said that they had the signature colors right the orange the black and I forget the other color and I was going to yes. ask how the heck did they drive around I mean fly around Florida with these distinctive colors so that plane was nondescript completely then
3: uh, the Gulfstream was was always the orange black and w- uh, white in uh, Walt's era uh, it was changed later uh, in 1990, 19, uh, about 86 to a blue color, blue and white. So, but the point is, is that during Walt's life is that the, uh, the airplane was, uh, undercover to help find this project. Once he passed away and they sold his personal airplane, then they wanted to promote the company all over again. So they took the, uh, tail number of uh, N234MM and they put it on the Gulfstream. Uh, a little later on, a couple of years later, they even put a mouse face on the tail. So all of a sudden, they weren't incognito at all. They were using it as a marketing tool. So when it would arrive at airports, people would, would just rush to the see the airplane because it was associated with uh, Walt Disney productions.
0: Now Mary Joe had a question before we started recording and that was when you know Walt was up in that plane flown by your father scouting areas for Walt, what would become Walt Disney World did he know what what he was doing what what the purpose of these trips were
3: well it's not something he told me uh, about personally but it was obvious that, that a lot of this was low level flying looking at land so this is not looking at something from, you know, five miles high. They're down they're down at 1,000 feet or, or so oh, above the ground um, looking at the features of the land to determine which areas they even want to become interested in. They're also looking at uh, access for freeways and things like that. So then they narrow their scope down of the land. So uh, he he certainly knew a lot of things. This was before NDAs. You just – knew better and you kept your mouth closed and uh supported your employer you you didn't broadcast stuff that you knew that they were secretly out doing yeah now I the think, mm-hmm, go ahead
1: i was just gonna say i i just think what an exciting time for your dad he shares this office with um bob ger and, and next to walt disney and the planning and 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 they were planning from nothing. You call it green, right? They were planning this blank slate to uh, create this wonderful park with these attractions for the rest of us. And for your dad to be a part of that, I can only imagine. You must be so proud of him.
3: Well, the thing is that back in the day, uh, while Disney Productions was a small company, it wasn't heavily loaded with uh, staff. So the ones that were there were, one, they were fortunate to have a job. Two, they worked for Average pay. Nobody was overpaid, and they they worked uh, in today's world an excessive amount. So, in other words, you really contributed uh, a lot of your personal time and life towards your job uh, when you were on the road with uh, Walt Disney Productions, especially in the aviation department. Uh, staffing was kept at a, a, a low level, so you know they were gone probably five days a week, which doesn't sound like much until you realize those are 24 hour days. So now you're gone all, but maybe two days a week. Uh, and there's other things that need to be done when you come back office work and stuff like that when you're running a department. So, uh, never once did he ever complain. Never once did he ever look for another job. Uh, he was always happy, uh, uh, working there, uh, and, in fact, he was going to retire before um, Epcot opened and uh, Card Walker uh, asked him if he'd stay on because they wanted wanted him to be a part of that.
0: That's wonderful. I think he should be a Disney legend. Yeah. Really, he was so much a part of history, to Disney history.
3: <laughs> well, uh, you know, there was a transition in in management uh, when the airplane moved to Florida, and it was kind of a, a bit of an orphan. Uh so they didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, what happened was is that an airplane doesn't have a end of life. It can basically fly forever. There can be airplanes out there that are 70, 80 years old that could be flying. So, But what you have to do is every year or at some frequency uh, short of a year, you have to inspect basically every part of the airplane. And during one of the major inspections in 1992 – Uh, they discovered some uh, corrosion inside the wing uh, planks. The plank makes up the top and the bottom of the wing where the fuel goes. So it was repairable, but they would have to remanufacture and make that plank and the airplane was not in production. So it would have been very expensive, could have been done. But when you have an airplane that was made in 1963 and here you are in 1992, you have to figure out, well, is this the only corrosion or will we find more, if we look elsewhere, so they made the decision that they weren't going to repair it, uh, and so at that point they could they had no idea what they were going to do with the airplane because they had just overhauled it, put a new cockpit in, and made it to last another decade or more. So they decided that uh, they, they couldn't sell it, so they decided, well, maybe we'll use it as kind of an attraction, and uh, they decided, well, we can land on Walt Disney World. Drive the private highway that goes into the park. There's about 4,000 feet between two bridges. If we take down the light posts and the signs, it's just barely wide enough. So we come in there and land the airplane, and it'll be then right next to uh, what it was then the MGM Disney Studio. So at that point, they had open space in the back, though so they could actually lift the airplane up over the highway. And into the back lot, which was the back lot tour at the time with the tram and all that stuff. So the airplane became uh, on exhibit for everybody in the tram to see as he went by. So that lasted for probably about 15 years. And then they came up with the idea they'd build Star Wars land. <laughs> so they repurposed all that land and they uh, had to take the wing off to move it. Uh, into a storage area, which is where Dexter saw it.
0: Mark, uh, were you involved in the restoration of the Gulf
2: Stream? This is where the story starts to get interesting, by the way, in terms of the outside world, seeing what's going on, because the air, the location of the aircraft was known from satellite imagery. And, you know, there are a number of groups online that are interested in all things Disney. And, one of the, the postings that I saw was that this aerial view of the outline of what clearly was the aircraft. As I said, it was down by the water treatment plant. And it sat there like that, out in the Florida sun and humidity for a, for a long time, which is not something that airplanes take too well. And then, I want to say it was about three years ago, a tarp suddenly appeared. In, this, in these satellite images, so the airplane is not out in the open anymore. And then someone, I, I, from what I recall, snuck in and started to take a closer look and discovered that the livery, the, the paint job on the aircraft, was being set back to the way it originally was. That that orange and black stripe, rather than the the uh, the blue blue and gold and white striping that they had when it was flying. Basically, with the with the uh, Disney World delivery, which is when things started to really heat up, and the questions started to fly about, well, wait a minute, we, why would you repaint this airplane? Why would you have it under wraps? What is going on with regard to all this? And there was a lot of speculation online. And then, sure enough, it was about uh, it was several months later that the announcement came out that the mouse was coming to D twenty three. And now we can segue back in, Mark, to the question of were you, how have you been involved in the restoration of the aircraft?
3: Well, that part's kind of funny because uh, when I went to Disney World uh, myself, I I was able to drive back into Reedy Creek uh, development and I saw the airplane uh, both green or blue. And then a few years later, I saw it painted and covered, but the cover was coming off. And I go, what the heck? Uh, this doesn't make any sense at all. So I made some inquiries, and I found out that they were contemplating bringing the airplane out to California, possibly put it in Glendale at the Glendale Airport, which is where the Imagineering Group is located. It's no longer an airport, but it has a classic like 1920s terminal. That's right, part of uh, the Imagineering Group, formerly Wed enterprises and uh, so I thought well maybe I'll inquire so I just wrote a letter to the chairman of the company who was uh, Bob Kapek at the time and I told them basically who I was and that I had knowledge of the airplane and uh, you know if they needed any help with it uh, that uh, you know let me know so that took about two ma- two days to get there and on the third day I got a call from uh, Ed Ovalli, who is a Disney archivist and he says, I think I have just found Mecca or whatever you want to call it. He said, <laughs> "He said, I'm in charge of the airplane putting on a presentation. I don't know anything about it. I don't have any records. Can you help me? And I said, yeah. He says, well, what do you know? And I said, well, what do you want to know? I know everything about the airplane. I know it from when it's green." To when it's rotting you know, away, so to speak, in the sunshine. And he says, Well, I have some questions. So one of the questions was there is well known that Walt Disney rode on the Gulf Stream on november twenty third, nineteen sixty three. But he said that is not possible. Because they didn't put their airplane, they didn't even receive their airplane until December, the first week, December 9th, I think. And he didn't start operating until March of 64. So how could he have been on the Gulf Stream? I said, well, let me look in my dad's logbook because I know he told me he, <laughs> he flew him that day. So I look there, and sure enough, there's the entry. I believe it's November 996 Gulf, Gulfstream 1, all the legs we talked about. Orlando, multiple places in Florida, looking at land, and then to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then to New Orleans. The, right there it says, President Kennedy assassinated. So now we he know.
0: In the logbook. He was,
3: okay. so, so now we know what was on the airplane. It was a Gulfstream, but it wasn't Walt's Gulfstream. It was what's called the demonstrator. So Grumman Aircraft, which is now Gulfstream, has airplanes that they build, and to show them, it's like going to a car lot. You get to go drive it, right? Well, in this case, uh, my dad was trained to fly the airplane. They went with uh, Jim Stevenson, who was a a representative of uh, Pacific Aeromotive, who was the person, the company that was going to be outfitting it, and the two of them flew Walt Disney and his group on this trip. So he indeed was on a Gulfstream. Ed can validate it. But now he can tell people, no, 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 It wasn't on 234 Mickey Mouse, but became 234 Mickey Mouse.
0: So it was basically a loner plane.
3: (laughs) That's Ed's words exactly. It's a loner plane. Yes. Oh, how fascinating. So so I worked with Ed for about six months. Uh, I mean, he works eight to five and he'd call me at nine or 10 o'clock at night. I got a question. I got that. I got an answer. Every question he asked, I had an answer, either in a logbook or from direct direct knowledge. And then later on, he would research because he has access to every piece of paper of correspondence of Walt's for his whole life. So then he would know what date to look for. He'd go back in the correspondence and he would validate that, uh, you know, who was on that airplane at that time, where it went, blah blah blah. So we worked together to do that, and I believe that um, possibly uh, Bob Iger might have made the decision to bring the airplane out to California during his tenure. That's when it was painted. COVID hit. They lost two years. I think that's when it just sat outside in in the sun with the new paint job. And then for D23, that was the next D23 event. And so that's when uh, Bob Kapak, uh I either made the decision or went along with it. Now, that was also an Amazon event. So Amazon was a major sponsor, just like building Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Walt Disney Productions or the Walt Disney Company wasn't going to take that airplane apart, use five semi-trucks, to bring it all the way across the country and put it back together for a D23 event. So they partnered with Amazon. Amazon made a whole host of Uh, of toys and sweatshirts and gadgets that they were able to promote both themselves and the airplane and the Walt Disney company. uh, And that uh, sponsored bringing the airplane out. So then they had to decide, well, what are we going to do with it? So my hope was that they were going to build the dome. They're going to put the airplane in it and they were going to use it for like uh, Walt's, uh, uh, Personal items, maybe a train, uh, maybe uh, his office from uh, the studio they would bring down there. Then they could uh, have uh, dinners uh, on most nights, and then they could even do ca- like catered events like they do at the Reagan Library with Air Force One. I thought it could be a money-making exhibit for basically only the cost of a shell building. No multi-million dollar ride inside. Hmm. Or... If they didn't do that, I was hoping maybe they would put it in the between, ca- entrance before, between California Adventure and Disneyland, possibly oh, up funny. on a pedestal, so that everybody that came in would walk under it. So I would say to myself, everybody, everybody that came to Disneyland or California Adventure would take out whatever camera they had and take a picture of that airplane. Everybody. And most everybody would send it to somebody. And that would be a whole new reason for all these people to come to Disneyland just to see the Walt's airplane. And so that's what I thought, that they to make it a money-making uh, attraction or making it an entrance uh, magnet with great publicity for the company. Uh, neither one of those worked out. It could have gone to what they call the boneyard, which basically just means to the desert until it gets chopped up. So the next best thing happened, uh, which is that it went to an aviation museum. Uh, and so the aviation museum that was chosen uh, was the Palm Springs Air Museum. And the significance of that is that that's where Walt had his weekend home. That's where he spent his, his time off. And that's where he helped actually even promote The expansion of the airport uh, on a committee during his life. Now, so now it'll be available.
0: Yeah, it'll be available. Now you had mentioned before it got you know sent over to Disney MGM Studios. You know, they discovered the issue of the wings. They had just redone the whole interior. Did they maintain that interior the whole time it was sitting? The Disney MGM Studios. What happened?
2: With
3: it. Well, the airplane was closed up and uh, it was not open for uh, anybody to tour at all. So it was not something that uh, any guest of any level uh, could go into. It's just, uh, just an exterior exhibit. So when they finally moved it out to uh, Palm Springs uh, by the way of the D23 event, it had sat outside for a long time and it was in need of a, a, a second renovation. So that worked Uh, is something that uh, the Palm spring air museum has agreed to do. And over the next few years, they'll put a plan together and uh, renovate it. Their goal with every airplane they have is that it's open to the public at, at uh, uh, maybe not every day, but at least on occasion. So their goal is that people that come there will be able to eventually go into the airplane and, uh, and see the interior.
0: Well, I hope those loose panels with the leaves from Homby Hills are somewhere that they can put back in there. But it's going to be tough to find authentic interiors from the 60s to put into that plane. So are they just going to have to recreate everything or was
3: anything well, safe? You well, know, you know, the imagine, it's the imagineers, they imagine things and then they make it happen. So I think that uh, at some point in the future, the airplane will be worthy of an interior visit.
0: I hope so. Now you'd mentioned how helpful your father's log books were. And I remember at the Walt Disney family museum, you had examples and they were incredibly detailed. Uh, Will those ever make their way to the archives someday, or are you going to start your own little museum or uh, about aviation or
3: what? Well, here's the thing. Um, I have so much from the, uh, the era of, uh, of Walt Disney's operating his three airplanes going on four. I have, you know, the original drawings of the interior, the original sketches of what the exterior paint could be, the original list of all the equipment, uh, uh, you know, the original flight manual, uh, the checklist for the pilots, the training manual, the company Uh, operating manual. I mean, I have drawers and drawers of stuff. It's, it's, you know, a lot of it's interesting for people like Dexter who um, have an intimate knowledge or yourself that just is interested in all things Disney. So uh, right now it's all displayed in my hangar. So I have an airplane hangar that's 2000 square feet and there's a massive amount of stuff that's on the wall in, uh, in a variety of curio cabinets. So, Uh, A good part of what I have is available for uh, friends and interested people to come by and see it. Uh, When I was at the uh, archives with Ed, he, of course, wants everything that I have uh, just to hold in the archives. (laughs) And I've told him that uh, uh, I really want to part with it because, you know, I'm older and uh, my kids don't have the same attraction to it as I do. I don't want it to just sit in a file cabinet in my hangar. So I would like it to go on public display. So I've asked Disney through Ed to look and see if they can uh, come up with an idea on how they could showcase the life of Walt Disney and in one small section be something related to the airplane and some of this original stuff that's directly tied to Walt. Mm -hmm. So if something happens with that, uh, I could see, uh, you know, the, the majority of this going there. If they decide not to do that, then my next probably move would be to talk to the Disney Family Museum, which is very interested in everything I have. They've seen it. Or the Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline, Missouri, which is the old train station in Walt's hometown. The whole entire two-story train station is a Walt Disney Museum. And it too would be a great location for it. The problem is, Marshall, Missouri is a very small town on a very rural road, and nobody basically passes through it unless you're headed directly to it. So it would be a great place for it, but not too many people would see it. San Francisco would be a better place. Uh, I agree. (laughs) And it's a very, very, very nice museum. Uh, So if if Ed uh, and him, the people at Disney, come up with a a way to display this, uh, I'm I'm more than willing to let them – have it. If they just want to keep it in the file cabinet for researchers, that doesn't interest me as much. But as of right now, the archives has almost everything of mine. That's any significance that they, everything they want. Let me put it this way. They have everything they want out of my collection in their hands right now. And they're able to, to look at it. They have every picture. They have every logbook page, every, everything. So, they can make copies and do stuff like that with it. But if they want the originals, I really want it to be on display somewhere. And I would prefer that it be in a park, not at the studio. Because the, the studio is not available for the, you know, the mass people that have interest in all things Disney. Sure, go ahead.
1: Were, were any of your dad's logs um, included at the D23 um, Expo with along with the airplane?
3: Yes, yeah, so the, yeah, so his his logbook with the first flight, with the in you know highlighted in red, uh, President John F. Kennedy assassinated today. That logbook with the first flight of Walt was on display in the uh, curio cabinet. Uh, so uh, it's available for everybody to see that went to uh, D 23 um, It would be so cool if that. they had
1: that in mm-hmm. the, um, you know how at. Disneyland in the, um, right before Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln in the Opera Mm -hmm. House. They, they, they have exhibits there. If they, this is such a, an interesting collection that I don't think enough people know about. If they use that space to, to put this out and with pictures that you, that, um, that you have and of the airplane, the picture that you took of Walt, I, I think that so many people like you said, would be interested in seeing that?
3: Well, everything that uh, Disney builds at a a park is tremendously expensive in the millions of dollars. Nothing is cheap, right? It's very expensive. The technology to put in a ride or whatever is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So they can only do so much of that at any given time. But people don't all want to ride on the, quote, e-ticket rides. They don't all Mm -hmm. want to wait in an hour line to do something. Sometimes they need a holding pen where they just kind of sit or stand and walk and relax. So Carousel of Progress, as an example, you just sit there and things go around you, but you get to relax. It's cool. Great moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland, with the waiting area with Walt's office and all of those exhibits. That's another example. I thought they could put the plane in a dome with all this stuff around it, and people would basically line up to come into something that wasn't even a ride that did only cost them the the the, 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 the shell because the exhibits would all be brought in. They already own all of them. So they just built the shell, provide some air conditioning. Now they have a place for people – especially the older group who may be more interested in Disney or with the little kids that don't want to sit in the sun and roast, they can come in and look at stuff like that. I thought it would be a great way to spend a small amount of money. So if Disneyland doesn't have the physical space for it, certainly one of the parks at Walt Disney World could dedicate an area for this, and I think it would be a major attraction without any real investment other than the Mm shell.
0: I, th- I think people would be interested. I know all our listeners would be uh, interested in seeing that. And, of course, since I live near the Walt Disney Family Museum, I would love to see <laughs> see everything on exhibit there. So how can our listeners learn more about Walt Disney Aviation Department and Walt's planes?
3: Well, right now, uh, Dexter has, has built a simulator where they can actually fly his airplane. And he's uh, Dexter has Let me fly it, and it's pretty darn realistic. I've worked with him for oh uh, well, maybe close to two months on it, and given him all kinds of little tidbits of information. He's applied virtually every one. Each one becomes more and more and more like the airplane. So if you want to kind of fly the airplane yourself, that's the best place to start. <laughs> as far as seeing it on display, that's the Palm Springs Air Museum. However, call first because they don't have it every day in their main museum where you can see it. Sometimes it's in a storage hangar where they're doing work on it. So Palm Springs Air Museum, Palm Springs, California, call ahead. Make sure that the Walt's Gulfstream is on display. As far as the other items, uh, th- they're not on display at this point, and we're, we're trying to figure out uh, how to uh, make that happen. Maybe at some point uh, Walt Disney Archives will publish a uh, video uh, that they produce on the airplane similar to what they had at D23 or at the Palm Springs air museum or up at the uh, Disney family museum. Uh, Cause that was actually very interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: It was Dexter, you've made a quite a bit of information available. So first of all, is, is your simulator available <laughs> to the public?
2: I I have not <laughs> uh, posted it for, for wide distribution yet, partly because Quite frankly, it's not to a level that I'm perfectly happy with it, and I'm a bit of a of a rivet counter. That being said, um, there there are um, th- the main area that anyone can go currently to track progress on what I think of as the Walt Airplane Project outside of Disney is the Facebook page. And uh, actually, I I started doing uh, blogging basically onto the Facebook page. It's been over three years now. And as I have gone through my journey in learning about the aircraft and in attempting to to do an accurate recreation of it for the X-Plane simulation platform, um, everything that I've been working on has basically been put out there. All the research that I've done, um, information that that Mark has shared with me, which has been really helpful, and he's he is definitely my doke, my go-to guy in terms of, is the flight model accurate? Are the instruments operating the way they're supposed to? Uh, so, and again, because my 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 goal, my intention was to create a visually accurate replica of the aircraft that also has. The performance characteristics of a G one fifty nine. That's what constantly drives me to, to to work on that thing. Having said that, uh, there's something else that I that, that Mark mentioned that I just created a, a thought for me, and that is, in a previous life, <laughs> back in 1999, in fact, uh, I partnered up with a friend of mine, and we did an air museum down in St. George, Utah. It was called the Southern Utah Air Museum. We just did cockpits. You know, there are a lot of air museums around the country and you can go and see full scale aircraft there. As a pilot myself, to me, the most exciting part of the airplane is the front office. And the direction that we decided to go in was to look at Cold War era aircraft. And we actually, we actually acquired the nose section to a B 52 Stratofortress. And Recreate, uh, recreated it, if you will. Got the instrumentation that was needed to plug all the holes in the cockpit. By the way, that aircraft no section is currently on display at uh, the, Tillamook, the Tillamook Air Museum. Up, oh, Mark's got a model in his hand. Um, oh, <laughs> I wish
0: we could. I wish our listeners could see it. But, but that's um,
2: wonderful. One one thing that occurred to me that kind of tacks on to what Mark was saying a little while ago. For those of you that have been to the uh, One Man's Dream present, presentation down in, in Orlando, as you walk through that space, I mean, another option could be to take what was done at D23 as a launching pad, if you will, and mm-hmm. say, look, we're going to give you an opportunity to see what it looked like in the cockpit of Walt's airplane. There are other Gulf streams around. You could get in those sections. You, the guys, and, the, and the guys in Imagineering could completely recreate it. By the way, what I started to do about two and a half years ago is once I had the list of what the avionics were that were in the aircraft through its life, I began to, to collect some of the rarer bits and pieces. For example, I've got a pair of tachometers from a G159. And I'm hoping as, the, as Fred and the guys down in Palm Spring get further along that uh, they're looking to start filling some of the holes in the instrument panel that those instruments that I've been gathering up can go and fill those holes because I want people to have the experience of being able to go on board that aircraft and at least look at it. This is something which is commonly done at aircraft museums around the world. If anybody's ever been up to Seattle and seen what they've done at the Boeing Museum, there. Uh, it may be behind plexiglass, but at least you can see what it was like. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, having that opportunity would would be a wonderful thing. And as Mark pointed out, uh, unfortunately, after 1992, uh, the million dollars that Disney spent on avionics in the last upgrade were sold off, and the interior was eventually stripped. Mm-hmm. So at this point, they're they're kind of rasa. <laughs> As far as the interior of the aircraft, <laughs> unfortunately, because of the the documentation that Mark has got, I mean, we know what the inside of the aircraft looked like. looks looked like, and it would be possible to go in and, and do a fairly high fidelity restoration of it. But as with all things, it, it takes manpower and takes money. That's we'll see money. how the guys down yeah. at uh, down at Palm Springs do. Yeah. But for those of you that are interested in a virtual tour. I'm going to direct you to the Waltz Airplane Facebook page, and and also, as I said, the air, uh, the airplane crazy Walt blog posting that I put up is a, a relatively comprehensive overview. Uh, and I don't know if I if I should say write write a letter to your senator or congressman, but uh, it it, <laughs> it occurs to me that as, as people become aware, because I, I think Mary Jo is correct, there's a lot going on here. That's directly related to something that Walt loved, and you know how how popular those studio tours are. And oh, by the way, there was a while mm-hmm. that Walt's office was in Orlando; it wasn't in Burbank. And yes, you know it's yes. back there now, where it belongs. So, uh, I, I just think that there are a number of avenues that could be explored here. From as Mark was saying, well, if you could put the if you could put the airplane right in the middle of that gigantic open area in between Disney's California Adventure and and the park, that you know that would certainly be a weenie. Uh, but there are, there are other things that could be done to get you there. Clearly, the simulation that I've done gives you an opportunity to, to get in the aircraft and see what it's like to fly it. Um, Mark's Mark is being very humble and modest, I think, in describing his uh, his shrine <laughs> that he has in his hangar. I mean that that place is incredible. The stuff that he's got, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to get access to the public for these things that are such an important part of Walt's story. I, I, I think.
0: I agree. I agree with you. The more we can put out there, the better. Also, the the Plain. if we want to see it in its heyday it starred i'm using quotations there in two yes. films in 1969 the computer wore tennis shoes and 1972 now you see him yes. now you don't so, so um you can see it actually even yep. moving and all and, that and hear in those incredibly amazing
2: never... rolls royce engines with their unique thrill sound yes yeah that's right mm. Well, we will have links to the
0: Facebook page and your blog post in our show notes. I, I think Mark I found Dex-
1: the Facebook page before. It's 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 Walt Airplanes, yes. correct? That's the name N- of the. Facebook. N- two, three, four yes. M M. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Walt. Okay.
2: Yeah. I'm, 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 yep. Very I good. Found it. Very good. It. Thank <laughs> you. Glad to have you on board.
1: <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah.
2: So.
0: Well, Mark and Dexter, thank you so much for joining us to share your stories about Walt's planes. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this chapter of Disney history.
2: Well, thank you. Enjoyed the visit it's been with a you pleasure both. Pleasure to share the passion with you. <laughs> okay. Well, Mary Jo,
0: that was a fascinating conversation with Mark and Dex- Dexter. Now, you work for Northrop Grumman, so what were your impressions of what they had to say about the planes?
1: Well, I mean, so I work for the, the, uh, the military part of, of Northrop Grumman. And it's just, I, as when they were talking about their planes, I was just thinking, guy, that was, well, first of all, I was thinking how Grumman worked in so many different, different uh, types of aviation. And then what really interested me was when, they were talking about this was a first of a kind that Walt Disney again entrepreneur Walt Disney um when he had the opportunity he, they this was the first private airplane custom made that he had and this is the first time I had ever heard of anything like that i'm surprised that it's not more well known
0: i agree this I just found this so fascinating because yeah. I knew only a little about Walt's plane. And um, when I met Mark and Dexter at the Walt Disney Family Museum a few weeks ago, I was just blown away. Yeah. By it, what a treat this to listen to history. these
1: personal stories, right? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And in the presentation, there were all kinds of photos. Mark is a little boy with his dad, photos of Walt and, and guests on the aircraft. Um, you know um when they were using it to promote films and all that there were photos of, of that and uh it was it was um it is really fascinating so that's why i hope yeah. that more of this can be made public yeah so that disney fans and people interested in disney history can um enjoy this and learn about yeah, this yeah
1: especially now when you have somebody like like mark that has so much personal um history and knowledge to be able to share that at this time. And then Dexter, who's done so much research, right. Mm-hmm. Um To, 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 if Disney will leverage that knowledge base and putting together some type of exhibit that the rest of us could in, enjoy D 23, that was a small, I mean, there were a lot of people there, but a small group, but if they could do something, man, that'd be so cool at either Disneyland or the Walt Disney, um, resort. And I don't know, as much as I would love to have it here at, at Disneyland, I just think that those planes or that plane played such a significant part in the creation of Walt Disney World. Having, and they have so much land there, it would be wonderful to have an exhibit.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. That would be nice. We'll see what happens so yeah. with that. So, but a uh, fascinating episode.
1: Yeah. Thank Thank you for including me, because I love that. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. I knew you would enjoy it. But now it's time for This Week in Disney History. (laughs) Mary Jo is our guest host. You, You can go first. So what do you have for us this week?
1: Thank you. I... You know, there's so much going on in, in this week throughout the years, right? For, at, at, for the Disney parks and the Disney company in general. But I picked a date that had personal, kind of personal significance for me. And this is July 17th, 1995, which was the day that Disneyland was celebrating its 40th birthday. It was the first time, it was a gift from my mom. Um, who had passed away, but before she passed away for my birthday, she gave me a night at the Disneyland hotel. That was her gift to me. So it was a a very bittersweet, um, stay, but I enjoyed it to all its fullest. So the kids and I spent the night at the Disneyland hotel. And then we went in on the monorail, which was a real treat, as you know, Going from the Disneyland Hotel to, to Disneyland and Disneyland, they celebrated, like I said, their 40th birthday and they had some pretty cool special events. One of them we can still see today, which is in front of the Sleeping Beauty Castle. They buried a time capsule. Mm-hmm. And, and you've seen that, right? Michael, the time capsule that yeah, they was,
0: buried? was it in the shape of, uh, of the castle or was that another anniversary? They no, did that. It's,
1: it's a circle and within the circle is, it looks like a brass castle. So you're absolutely right. That's, okay. that's the shape that's there. And it's supposed to be opened in 40 years from 1995. So the things they have in it are, it's 62 items. I don't know why they didn't choose 40, but they choose 62 items. Uh, 40 years of adventures, Disneyland cast member name tag with the name Mickey, photo of the Disneyland ambassador team. And an aerial photo of the Disneyland Resort in the surrounding area. And on that day, it was actually exposed so we could see it, which was cool. So they had they hadn't uh sealed it yet. And they had this capsule. And I haven't really found anything on um on the web about it, but Randy Travis stood on top of the Matterhorn and he sang this Mickey Mouse Club March. From the
0: top of the Matterhorn? From the top of the Matterhorn.
1: (laughs) And we we were all on Main Street singing Happy Birthday to Disneyland. And they had free birthday cake. Wherever you went, they just had these huge cakes and cut in slices. And all you had to do was walk up and they would give you free. You didn't pay for it. It was free to everybody. And it was all day long. And of course, you know, after you can only eat so much cake, but walking around Disneyland and, and seeing that and the, and the smiles and everything was just so cool. And another thing that happened on that day was, um which is kind of appropriate because we're in the fourth movie now, but Indiana Jones went from the mat flew, flew down or, or <clears throat> with it. He uh, went down from the Matterhorn.
0: That's right. In fact, the logo was for the 40th anniversary was 40 years of adventure, and it was Mickey Mouse dressed as Indiana Jones. I have the T-shirt still. That's
1: cool. I that. I didn't get it. My my Nick, uh, both of the kids. I got them hats. Kelly got a princess uh, cone cone hat, and Nick got a fedora because we were <laughs> Indiana Jones adventure had just opened, and so we were all into Indiana Jones in, in those days. So that day was just. It was just so exciting to be there, to be part of the celebration. And there was so much going on. And I just, I I can't think of that day without a smile on my face. I'll bet. So, Yeah. yeah that
0: sounds wonderful. So what mm-hmm. wonderful memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, mine is July 19th, 1999. And uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about uh, the Mind Train Through Nature's Wonderland. Luella was on that show. And, well, Dallas McKinnon, who was the voice of that attraction, was born on July 19th, 1919. He's also the voice of Benjamin Franklin in Disney's American Adventure at Epcot. Also, um, Andrew Jackson in Walt Disney World's Hall of President. And, and as I mentioned, he was the narrator of The Mind Chains in Nature's Wonderland. And he was born in La Grande, Oregon. And He's probably now for younger listeners. He's best remembered for his big Thunder Mountain Railroad safety announcement. So, you know, at the at all the parks for at, you know, hang on to your hats and glasses. This year's the wildest oh, ride that's, in the wilderness. That's how them. many
1: people repeat that saying, right? Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot.
3: Yep.
0: <laughs> but he was in a few um, Disney live action films. He had a small row. Um, role in 1963, Son of Flubber. He played a detective in the misadventures of Merlin Jones in 1964. He voiced a few of the characters in Mary Poppins. He voiced an animated bear in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. He played Charlie in the sci-fi comedy, The Cat from Outer Space, um, 1978. And he played the saloon man in Hot Lead and Cold Feet, also in 1978. He also lent his voice to several um, Disney animated films, including Lady and the Tramp, um the Paul Bunyan short, um, 101 Dalmatians, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. Uh, he's also known for a few non-Disney voice roles, like he was Gumby for Art Clokey's Gumby. I don't Wait, know if you-
1: the Gumby?
0: The Gumby. I remember oh watching those when I was a kid. Yep. Yeah,
1: oh, I, I can't and, just sing this song, not that I'm going to do it. But, okay,
0: but I think okay. this one will really surprise you. He was also the voice of Archie Andrews for Filmation's Archie series.
1: No way. Re-
0: yeah, I know. So he was very talented because, yeah. you know, he really had a wide range of vocal um, talent and their vocal skill so to take on all these different characters.
1: Yeah, and we're still we're still enjoying hearing hearing his voice in the parks today. So that's I think really really cool.
0: That is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um you mentioned Indiana Jones earlier. So, I think we both saw Indiana Jones in the Dial of Destiny?
1: Yeah, I did.
0: So, what did you think of it?
1: Okay. Now now we already know that I'm an easy audience, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to tell you I I love the movie I'm I'm shocked that and and I think it's the culture of today that it's not a blockbuster movie because if this movie had come out you know uh, a f- few years ago it would have been at the top of the the list in my opinion we loved it I went to go see it with my brother and. The audience was laughing. Well, and I, I, you know, there's a couple of gotcha moments. So, of course, I'm one of those people that scream out loud in the theater to my chagrin. But I really enjoyed the movie. It was a fun, typical fun Indiana Jones flick, in my opinion. What did, what did you think, Michael?
0: There were parts of it I really enjoyed and parts of it not really. Um, I thought it was a little long. And, I mean, I felt the time. That it was two and a half hours, or whatever it is, but I some of the thing. Okay, the one thing that Disney's been doing lately is taking its male heroes and then turning them into bitter old men. Han Solo, he was he was divorced from his wife, he was you know estranged from his son. Well, so was Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is a grumpy old man who, I mean, he. This was a great explorer and, and 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 all that and 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 he's reduced to being an angry man in a dirty apartment, banging on neighbors' doors with a baseball bat yeah. to tell them to keep down the music. And I thought mm-hmm. this is pathetic. And we learn what happened to his son. So I'm not going to give it away, but he's separated from him and he and his wife are getting a legal separation. So poor Marion is, you know, and, and they say that her role was actually, they were brought back and they re they refilm the end. And Harrison Ford has said this publicly. They changed the ending of the film, but that just, and, and even like Luke Skywalker, he's a bitter old man living on, um, You know, on some island trying to forget everything he ever did in his life. So I thought, I don't know why they keep doing this to, to their heroes. So that, so that bothered me just that they did that. I thought the story, it just got so outlandish for me. This 13 year old kid who's never been in a plane, but is, he did some amazing things. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, um, cool. and I yeah, didn't even know what his purpose was in the film, and I, he wasn't all adorable. I mean, he killed someone so yeah. um
1: i i yeah. I mean, it's an Indiana Jones movie we're talking about you know um quote kind of like the supernatural like in the other other movies, so you have to suspend belief you know in in some of these stories and and yeah. I kind of told myself at the beginning. At it, but I thought they did a. Uh, I didn't realize that they would show so much of his early adventures in order to to bring us to date on on the current, uh, so we could understand what was going in the current day story, and I thought that was that I thought they did a really good job. That was that.
0: I for me that was the best part of the film, like the first yeah. twenty minutes or so. Yeah. yeah so. They-
1: I like how they tied it all together, and I get what you're, where you're coming from. Um, I'm hoping that that uh, you know Disney kind of comes to a to to a, a you know how like when you when usually you start things are one extreme, and then when you try to to uh, adjust, then you know society or whatever will go to the other extreme, and then eventually kind of gets a, a nice middle where you can have both male and female representatives. Um, so I kind of do agree with you in that is I know that a lot of the older movies had mostly male representatives. Well, now I want to see a balance. I don't want to see it one way. I don't want to see it the other way. I want to see a balance where they show both of them. So I, I do understand where you're coming from. And I, I do feel the same way. But yeah. for the Indiana Jones movie itself, I we had a great time.
0: Good, good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was okay. I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. I think it was better than Crystal Skull. Or yep. Yeah, that. so this is above that one, but the the first two I prefer over this yeah, one. Yeah,
1: I'm waiting for Nick and Yasmin to go see the movie because I was telling him that I liked it better than... Um, the Last Crusade, and he was like, what? How could you? Sean Connery was in that one, you know? And so I'm waiting for them to to come in and, and give me their their opinion so we can uh, discuss the merits of all four films. But yeah. I recommend the film. Like I said, there's no cussing. Custody- I mean, there is violence, but it's Indiana Jones-type violence, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, there's the... I was surprised that Steven Spielberg didn't direct it. Because they brought in the levity again, uh, the levity with the with the action, so it didn't become too heavy in in many parts. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was an interesting concept. Um, you know, when you say di- the the dial of destiny, I thought that was pretty pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I I can recommend it, but. Um... It's like out of the four, it's number three for me.
1: Okay. So, That's anyway. fair. Not yeah. that the Crystal Skull has, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's, it is an Indiana Jones, but yeah, I would.
0: But Crystal believe. Skull had a, a, a happier ending and it was a good wrap up for yeah. Indiana Jones and Marion and Mutt and all that. And I wish they just sort of had left it there. So.
1: Well, he did tell us at D23 this is his absolute last.
0: It um, it would have to end end be. I, I mean, he <laughs> would have to be. He'd be in an electric scooter. I mean, if he did it again. So.
1: <laughs> I know it's anyway. the way he he. Why I can't say what the ending is because I don't want to ruin it. But it was. I, I liked it. <laughs>
0: good, good. So, have you been to Disneyland recently? I know last time we talked, you were planning to go.
1: Yeah, I was. I was planning to go, and I forgot what happened on Friday, so I had to to cancel um my reservation. I did mm-hmm. do it the day before so I'm not penalized, but I'm going for sure on the 21st. I I want to see um the uh, Rodgers the musical. Plus I want to see the things that are at Disneyland right now, so I'm kind of missing it. They reopened Alice in Wonderland and I forgot what other attraction. Um
0: Did they, so they open Peter Pan on- yet or is that the one that was longer down longer?
1: I didn't see that they reopened Peter Pan yet,
0: Okay,
1: I'll, I'll be able to uh, report. An okay. level. And I want to see the fireworks because I haven't seen them yet.
0: Right. Yeah. I want to see those too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, Mary Jo, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. So until next time, how can our listeners connect with you?
1: Um, listeners can find me on the Disboards that I hang around there on the Disneyland and the podcast page and community board, et cetera, And on Facebook under Mary Jo Mulatto Willie.
0: Excellent. How about you? You can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm with connectingwithwalt Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig and Mary Joe and all of our guest co-hosts on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. On the link Craig includes in our show notes. Also look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible.